Welcome back to Breast Cancer Update. Dr. Simmons commented on the Oncotype DX assay, and I met with Dr. Dabu Tripathi to get his take on the practical clinical implications of this fascinating tool and other developments in systemic management of breast cancer. Dr. Tripathi began by presenting a patient from his practice in whom he utilized the Oncotype to assist in decision-making. This was a 42-year-old woman who had noted a vague lump in her left upper outer breast. And she had a mammogram which showed a partially obscure density, but an ultrasound did show about a one centimeter mass in that area, had a biopsy that did show an intermediate grade cancer that was hormone receptor positive. And she ultimately went to lumpectomy and a sentinel node biopsy. All three of the sentinel nodes were negative and the tumor was 1.2 centimeters. The ER and PR were both strongly positive and her tumor was negative. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself, what her life circumstances were? So this was a woman who's an interior designer and was very intelligent but didn't really read up a lot about breast cancer and really didn't intend to. She wanted her treatment team to make these decisions, and she did take some time in deciding where she got her treatment, and she felt comfortable initially with the mammographer who she saw first and then ultimately with the surgeon and met with me. And she was happy with our team and was willing to let us make the decisions. As long as we explained everything to her, she certainly had a lot of questions and wanted to be involved in the decision. Did she have a spouse? She did have a spouse, although he never came to any of the appointments. But apparently they did discuss this amongst themselves as well. They did not have any children. She was a busy professional and wanted to continue working while she got whatever treatment she got. How did you sort of lay out to her the situation at that point? Before we got any additional testing done other than just the hormone receptors and the pathology, I outlined to her our general approach for balancing chemotherapy, side effects versus the projected benefits. And I told her that there are certainly situations in which in the end we may decide not to use chemotherapy alone. We knew that hormonal therapy was clearly something we were going to recommend, and she even knew that at the time that she saw us. So it was really going to be a decision as to how much the chemotherapy would benefit her. When we sat down, I had projected with her that with a 1.2-centimeter tumor that I would estimate her risk of recurrence is somewhere around 15%, and we could lower that to maybe 7 or 8% with hormonal therapy, and then maybe another 2 or 3% with chemotherapy, which in her mind at that point she thought was not something that she would want to have chemotherapy for. She was concerned about her appearance, but also about time off from work. But the thing that concerned her most were the long-term side effects. She was very concerned about cardiovascular side effects. She was concerned about leukemia. And, in fact, she asked about leukemia. I gave her the statistics, which were a little reassuring to her. She thought it was more common. than What numbers did you give her? I gave her about 1 in 400, 1 in 300, somewhere in that range. So she was reassured that that was low, but she was still concerned about the cardiac side effects. We talked about a number of about 1% for someone her age. Just parenthetically, are you still giving patients the 1% figure? I know there were some recent data presented suggesting maybe it's going to be a little bit higher. I think it's age-dependent. I think for a young woman her age, it probably is around 1%. And the older literature suggests that it was around 1%. And I think there's two problems with the older literature. One is it does focus on younger women because those are the women that used to get chemotherapy in the past. And number two, we obviously weren't following cardiac ejection fractions as closely as we are now. 
and there was only short-term follow-up. Now that we have better instruments, longer follow-up, and older women are getting chemotherapy, you're right. The numbers for the older women may be as high as 2 maybe even 3%. So this woman was concerned about getting adjuvant chemotherapy. What was the next step? The next step was to project what her benefit was, and when I gave her these numbers, it became clear to me that she did have a clear threshold for which she was going to take chemotherapy or not, and that's when I suggested that we do the Oncotype DX score because I don't necessarily get that test on everybody, but once I have a conversation with them and it's clear that the range of risk is going to matter to them and we may want a more precise definition of that, that's exactly the kind of person who I think needs this test. So at that point, we decided to wait another week, send the Oncotype DX score off, And our feeling was that if it was under, say, 20, we probably would forego chemotherapy. If it was over 25 or 30, we certainly would. If it was in that gray zone, we'd talk more about it. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what the data are right now on the Oncotype DX assay and what your thoughts are that have led you to incorporate that in your practice? I accepted the data little by little. When it first came out, I was a little skeptical, and as more data came in from different data sets, then I felt that it was probably more robust. Initially, the score was built on small, uncontrolled studies just to make sure that they could do the assay right and that they knew which genes were the ones that were important. And then when they took it to the validative study, the NSABP study B14, they did show quite well in that study that it did track with risk. Now, since that time, there's even been more data, and this is from the NSABP B20, where not only is the risk higher if your recurrent score is higher, but those are the patients that derive the benefit from chemotherapy. So it was really that second study, which just came out recently, that really led me to have more confidence in it, and I realized that more and more data are going to come in over time. I guess one of the striking things about that second data set was that in the high-risk patients, there was such a dramatic effect of chemotherapy. Right. In fact, it was that high-risk patient that really was driving the entire number for the whole trial. So there was about a 25% benefit in that study. So that's pretty substantial. So if that really holds up in further studies, I think the Oncotype DX will be even more powerful than we're assuming it is now. Do you see the Oncotype moving into node-positive tumors and other situations? I see no reason why it shouldn't. I think that node-negative and node-positive is a continuum. Now, obviously, we think of it as a discrete entity. It's either node-positive or node-negative, but really, you can have small nodal metastases, larger ones. So we have to understand that we're dealing with a continuum, and there's no reason to believe that that prognostic factor is going to be any different in node-negative than node-positive. You may have to adjust the numbers upward a little bit if you're dealing with node positive, but I think that the range will still hold. In other words, a low recurrence score in someone with a positive node is still going to mean a lower risk of recurrence. Now, the same score for a node negative versus a node positive is going to be associated with a differential risk, I believe. So what happened with this woman's oncotype? Well, this patient came back with a high oncotype score of 33. And that corresponds to a distant recurrence risk at 10 years of upwards of 25%. So for this patient, we ended up going with chemotherapy. The patient felt more comfortable about the decision. She was obviously concerned and scared that it meant a higher risk, but it gave her more resolve to move ahead with the chemotherapy and felt confident about it and clearly felt that the side effects would be justified given the benefit she was getting.
I guess bottom line is you can turn around and say to her that the relative risk reduction in the high-risk group is about 75%. That was my read on it, that the three out of four relapses were avoided with chemotherapy in the high-risk group. Was that your take? Yes, the benefit there is quite dramatic. And that probably dilutes out the average benefit that we see in these trials. We talk about lowering the risk by maybe a quarter or a third. It very well could be that only a third of the patients are benefiting, and those thirds are actually getting a 75% reduction, as was suggested in the study. Now, these numbers may not hold up on larger analysis. I don't think we should take the 75% reduction too literally at this point. But I think we can say in more general terms that the benefit is not distributed equally across the population. So what kind of chemotherapy did you use with her, and how did she tolerate it? Well, we decided to go with chemotherapy, and in my mind, when I'm going to use chemotherapy like AC, then I figure you might as well add the taxane in for the additional benefit, because when you look at the side effects of AC versus AC taxol, you find that the long-term side effects are no different. Cardiac toxicity, leukemia risk. The one thing that is different is these patients have a longer time of chemotherapy and associated symptoms and fatigue. And then more importantly, I think neuropathy is something to be concerned about, especially in older people, people with diabetes. These are the people that really have problems with neuropathy. So I don't want to minimize the addition of a taxane. In younger patients, it tends not to be as much of a problem. And when we talked about the higher risk, we decided to just go for the whole regimen of dose-dense AC taxol. And how did she tolerate it? She ended up tolerating it very well. This was actually a recent patient, and she's still in the process of completing chemotherapy. She's continued to work through it. I'd say she was, you know, in the quarter top group in terms of symptoms, so she was fortunate not to have these symptoms. What are the main problems that you see people experience who receive dose-dense AC paclitaxel? Initially, it's the fatigue. That's the main problem. Younger people tend to have a little more in the way of nausea and vomiting. Maybe a quarter of people will have some degree of it, even with the antiemetics. The other thing we're seeing with the dose-dense AC is a little more in the way of mucocutaneous symptoms. So we do have more stomatitis, mucositis. Some people even have tenderness of the hands and the feet, which is something we didn't used to see in the non-dose-dense era. So at the completion of her chemotherapy, I guess you're going to start hormone therapy. Yes, we plan to use tamoxifen since she's premenopausal. She still is having periods. Even if she stops having periods, I feel that many of these women will still have ovarian function, will continue to make estrogen and need to be treated with tamoxifen rather than an aromatase inhibitor. Can you talk a little bit about where we are right now with adjuvant hormonal therapy? Well, hormonal therapy is clearly effective in all age groups. We used to initially think it was mostly for older patients, and over the years what we've come to realize it's really what matters is the hormone receptor content. So clearly ER or PR positivity indicates a possibility of risk reduction, and we now know that the optimum duration is five years, and that gives you around a 40% reduction, and that is seen in all age groups. The use of tamoxifen, which has been the gold standard, continues to be so, For postmenopausal women, however, the aromatase inhibitors are showing a marginal advantage, and that's anywhere from a 20 to 40% additional reduction. But what it translates to in terms of absolute numbers is really somewhere between a 2 to 5% improvement in the recurrence-free outcome over the next four to five years. So in the postmenopausal patient, generally, what's your first hormonal therapy? 
So I typically will start someone off with an aromatase inhibitor. I tend to use an astrazole as the drug of choice, but I think that the other two aromatase inhibitors, exemestane and letrozole, are all in the same league. There are some that believe that patients should get a couple of years of tamoxifen first and then switch over to an aromatase inhibitor because that strategy has also been shown to improve outcome. In fact, the numbers are a little bit bigger. But the reason that the numbers are a little higher in these types of studies is that these patients get randomized after they've been on tamoxifen for a couple of years, and the few patients that have recurred in that time wouldn't, of course, have been eligible for this study, and that actually can change the numbers. If you will, it enriches for the hormone-sensitive population. So at this point in time, I think the data supports all three of the aromatase inhibitors roughly equally in providing these benefits. What are the side effects and toxicities that have been observed with the AIs? Primarily, the reproducible side effect is there is an acceleration of bone mineral loss. And this does translate into a slightly higher fracture rate. Most of the fractures are from just regular falls, and they're wrist fractures. And if you fall and injure your wrist, you're a little more likely to have a fracture if you're on an AI, and that accounts for about two-thirds of the fractures. The fractures that we're really concerned about, hip fractures, actually are not as common And because the event rate is lower, it hasn't emerged as being statistically different. But that's probably one of the more important differences. Symptomatically, another side effect we see is what we call musculoskeletal syndromes. We lump them together, and this consists of myalgias and arthralgias, typically of the hands and feet, sometimes the shoulders and the hips. We don't really understand the mechanism of that, but we clearly see that in as many as a third of patients. And in somewhere between 5 to 10% of patients it actually requires discontinuation of therapy. How would you sort of stack that side effects and toxicity ratio up compared to tamoxifen in postmenopausal women? Well, it certainly has fewer in the way of gynecologic side effects. So stimulation of the uterus is not seen, uterine cancer is not seen, vaginal discharge is generally not seen. So when you take all the gynecologic symptoms, you're generally better off with aromatase inhibitors compared to tamoxifen. I guess the one symptom that you do see more with AIs is vaginal dryness, again, going along with the total estrogen deprivation. You also see less of the thrombotic complications. So there's less deep venous thromboses, less cerebrovascular accidents. And this is important in older women because the absolute risks of these events are much higher in them. So as women get older, 70, 75, 80, it actually becomes better to use an aromatase inhibitor, even though these patients also tend to have more osteoporosis. I still think that in the balance, they're better off with an aromatase inhibitor. How about endometrial cancer? Can you comment on that? Yes, endometrial cancer is definitely less with aromatase inhibitors as well, and in some of the trials, this has now achieved uh, statistical significance. In fact, endometrial symptoms in general, so spotting, bleeding, is less to the point that women also end up having fewer hysterectomies if they're on an AI. What about duration of aromatase inhibitors in the adjuvant setting for tamoxifen? We sort of got fixed on five years. How about for the AIs? Well, tamoxifen has been very well studied. We initially started with one- and two-year trials, and we compared that to five and showed that five is better. And then we even did five versus ten and showed that it was no better. In fact, ten was a little worse, so we have settled on five. With aromatase inhibitors, we don't have that amount of follow-up. The schemes that have been tried have been head-to-head comparisons of tamoxifen or an AI for five years. The other studies have been crossover studies where you take tamoxifen for two to three years and then cross over to an aromatase inhibitor. 
And then finally, after five years of tamoxifen, comparing placebo to five years of an AI, again, an AI is superior. So those are the strategies that have been looked at. So on that basis, the ASCO Technology Assessment Panel has recommended that an AI should be considered as part of hormonal therapy for postmenopausal women. And they state that a duration of anywhere from two to five years, as long as there is a total of five years of any hormonal therapy. And then they also make the point that therapy beyond five years with an AI the effects of that are not known. And so I generally recommend five years of an AI. In fact, when I cross patients over after two to three years of tamoxifen, I still go ahead with a full five years of an AI. And then certainly when I'm using it instead of tamoxifen altogether, then I use five years of an AI. There will be more studies looking at five versus 10 years. In fact, the study that looked at tamoxifen followed by letrozole for five years is going to re-randomize after five years of letrozole to either come off or stay on for another five years. But the results of those studies obviously will take some time. Now, what about in the premenopausal patient? You mentioned that you had started this patient on tamoxifen, which clearly is the most common endocrine therapy used in premenopausal women. But other strategies that are being looked at or considered in clinical trials, at least, are ovarian suppression or ablation alone or with tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. Do you think there's a role for any of these newer strategies in a non-protocol setting? Well, of course, aromatase inhibitors do need to be used only when the ovaries are suppressed. So if you're going to use an aromatase inhibitor, you do need to suppress the ovaries. And it's just an important point to make since what aromatase inhibitors do is prevent the conversion of androgens to estrogen, whereas when the ovaries are producing estrogen, it's a totally different biosynthetic pathway. So using an AI in a premenopausal patient really isn't going to give any effect at all. So having said that, we've known that ophorectomy is effective in premenopausal women with hormone receptor positive disease. But then when tamoxifen started to become used more and more, the role of ophorectomy really wasn't clear. And so far, none of the studies have shown that in patients on tamoxifen that the addition of an ophorectomy helps. And there have been studies that have looked at this. But they haven't been large studies, certainly not by today's standards. So there is an ongoing study right now that is taking premenopausal women who have hormone receptor positive tumors with tamoxifen now being the standard arm and tamoxifen plus ophorectomy, in this case using a gonadotropin analog, and then a third arm using ovarian suppression with an aromatase inhibitor. But given the fact that the current trials have not shown a benefit from ophorectomy, I only consider ophorectomy in the protocol setting. I do not, as standard of care, offer an ophorectomy, but it is a controversial area. There have been some studies in which subsets of very young women under the age of 40 have shown a trend towards an improved outcome. So there are oncologists there who do feel strongly about suppressing ovarian function, especially in very young women, say, under the age of 40 on the basis of some of these subset analyses. There are also trials that have compared ophorectomy head-on to chemotherapy. These are generally trials that have looked at CMF-type chemotherapy, but there aren't such studies that have looked at more modern anthracycline and taxane therapy. So I think at this point it still remains a study question. Sometimes patients themselves are very motivated to have an ophorectomy. They're young, and so they are going to continue to have ovarian function for some time. And after discussing the pros and cons with these patients, I will sometimes go ahead and do that. And it turns out that younger patients are probably enriched as well for those with familial risk. 
and one might then assume that their ovarian cancer risk might be a little higher. And then, of course, there are the women that actually go through genetic counseling and genetic testing, and for them, that's a much easier decision because, you know, they need to have their ovaries out now for more ovarian cancer control reasons. Now, what about patients who are premenopausal and then get adjuvant chemotherapy and go into a premature menopause because of the adjuvant chemotherapy? How do you approach hormonal therapy in that situation? Do you approach them as a postmenopausal patient or a premenopausal? Well, this is a very important point to make because a lot of women, of course, do go through a cessation of periods and develop hot flashes and really go through what is menopause. But it's important to recognize that both with chemo-induced menopause as well as regular menopause, that the ovaries actually can continue to make estrogen even after clinical menopause. And this may go on for six months, even up to two years. So when patients have cessation of periods, we know just from historical studies that many of them will regain their menstrual function. And during this time that they're not having periods, they actually may be making plenty of estrogen. And an aromatase inhibitor in that situation would be giving them no protection at all. So for these patients, or even patients who already have gone through menopause at the time of chemo but only did so maybe three or four or six months ago, I still use tamoxifen, and I'll go for two years, and then if over that period of time they don't have a period, then I'll switch them to an aromatase inhibitor with the justification that we know that even tamoxifen for two or three years crossing over to an AI still improves outcome, and so I think for those patients that's the way to go. Do you check their FSH, LH, and estradiol levels at that point also? I generally don't. I think that clinical menopause really gives you all the answer, unless for some reason it's difficult to interpret. Some women just have a hard time knowing, and they may have some vaginal spotting, and sometimes it's not clear. And in those cases, I might get several assays over time to make sure they're staying in the postmenopausal range. But the reason I don't use them is that a patient who is transiently postmenopausal but is destined to resume her period, say, even a month or two down the line, may have postmenopausal numbers. So you can still get misled. I want to talk a little bit about adjuvant therapy for the HER2-positive patient. Before we get into the issue about trastuzumab, what about hormonal therapy in the patient who has a HER2-positive tumor? How do you approach that? There has been some evidence in the literature that patients with HER2-positive tumors may be somewhat refractory to tamoxifen. All the studies have not uniformly shown that, but some have. And in the laboratory also, there is evidence that the HER2 pathway can be associated with hormonal resistance more so to tamoxifen than other forms of hormonal therapy like aromatase inhibitors. So some have taken this to mean that patients with HER2-positive tumors either shouldn't get tamoxifen or should get tamoxifen with the understanding that they may not get the same benefit or should have their ovarian function suppressed and be treated with an aromatase inhibitor. I personally think that the data are not as strong in that regard And I certainly wouldn't say that it is the standard of care for someone with a HER2-positive tumor who's premenopausal to really have to get an aromatase inhibitor, and then that would mean concordant ovarian ablation. What about the issue of adjuvant trastuzumab? Can you summarize where we're at right now in terms of our understanding of the impact of trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting? Well, it is clear that trastuzumab lowers the risk of recurrence. Four large randomized studies have all reported roughly equivalent reductions in risk, cutting the risk about in half. And these translate into large absolute reductions because these patients generally have high risk of recurrence. So the data are holding up. It looks like the recurrence risk is reduced by anywhere from 40 to 50%. Some of the studies are now showing mortality differences with longer follow-up. 
The question really is, what is the lower end of risk that one would treat? Because we are seeing cardiac toxicity from trastuzumab, as we expected we would. We saw it in the metastatic setting. We're seeing it in the adjuvant setting. It seems to be different from the cardiotoxicity you get with chemotherapy. It tends to be maybe more reversible. It tends to be treatable. In fact, in the adjuvant trastuzumab trials, there really were not any deaths associated with trastuzumab. But there were clinical congestive heart failure rates of anywhere from 2 to 4%, depending on which trial you looked at. And most of these patients do recover over time. Many of them still have to stay on cardiac meds, though. It's also becoming clear that older patients are at higher risk for this. And if you have a borderline ejection fraction to start with, around 50%, and you're over the age of 60, your cumulative cardiotoxicity rate may be as high as 10 or 15%. So one has to weigh this against the benefit that one is projecting to get from trastuzumab. So the best way to sort this out is to determine what the patient's risk will be, and you can use either the adjuvant online model or whatever model or estimate you might want to use and calculate what that would be after chemotherapy and hormonal therapy if the patient has hormone receptor positive disease. And then about half of whatever that would be is what you would get out of Herceptin. You have to keep in mind that the data may change over time. Right now it looks like a 40-50% reduction. It's possible that as we follow patients out longer it may not be that great. But nevertheless, it really needs to be a case-by-case decision. And as you might imagine, the gray zone, the borderline cases are going to be those smaller tumors that are node negative. Where do you see things heading in general in terms of systemic therapy of breast cancer? Well, the trend so far has been just add more things on. Chemotherapy, now chemotherapy plus hormonal therapy, now chemotherapy plus hormonal therapy plus trastuzumab, and then maybe plus bevacizumab. And those are incrementally improving outcomes. So that's a good thing. In fact, outcomes are so much better now that when we design our trials and conduct them and we're waiting for the number of recurrences that we need to do the statistical analysis, we're finding that we're not getting these recurrences because things have improved. The problem with this, however, is that we're exposing a lot of patients to a lot of drugs, many of which may not need it. And when you lower the risk of recurrence by 20%, you have to ask yourself, is everybody's risk being lowered by 20% or is it possible that maybe half the patient's risk are being lowered by 40% and the other half are getting no benefit at all? So the benefit is clearly not distributed equally. And we know from the Oncotype DX that the benefit of chemotherapy probably isn't distributed equally. It seems to be more in the higher recurrence scores. So I think the future really hinges not only on the development of newer targeted drugs, but really identifying which patients benefit from them. Also, I think that we are going to have to use them in combination. When you look at the molecular abnormalities and the subsequent protein abnormalities that you see in breast cancer, they're numerous. It's not just one genetic hit. It's many of them. And if you only interrupt one of those pathways, eventually the cell will become resistant and will bypass it. So we have to understand how to target multiple pathways with a cocktail of targeted drugs. But moreover, we have to assemble the right cocktail for the right person based on their profile. And we will probably do this either at the genomic or the gene expression or maybe at the protein level over time. What are some of the clinical research strategies that are being used right now to try to achieve that? Well, we are trying to more and more when we do adjuvant studies to gather 
the patient's tissue block ahead of time to at least do immunohistochemical studies or even get a frozen core biopsy where we can do really high-level detailed studies looking at all 23,000 genes simultaneously. So there's been vast improvements in high-throughput analysis looking at thousands of proteins and thousands of genes simultaneously and then using sophisticated computer algorithms to segregate out those that respond and those that don't. And the preliminary data from these types of studies show that you can derive a molecular signature or a molecular profile that predicts reasonably well in a agent-specific manner who's going to respond and who isn't. The problem with these assays is they're very cumbersome, they're hard to do, they can only be done in a research setting. So we're going to obviously need to develop high-throughput labs that can do these reliably, again, similar to the Oncotype DX, which is now commercially approved. So I see that these assays are going to be CLIA-approved little by little and FDA approved and standardized to the point where we now do use them in clinic. And I think that's actually not too far away. This isn't five or ten years in the future. I think it's more like two or three years in the future. How do you right now today conceptualize breast cancer sort of in terms of not so much clinical subtype, but more maybe genomic or biologic subtypes? There have been different kinds of classification systems that have been utilized. How do you put that together? Well, there are several different ways to classify tumors, and interestingly, the same pattern seems to emerge. There seems to be some broad categories of patients based on how the gene patterns cluster, and they seem to have unique clinical and pathologic characteristics. For example, the ER-positive tumors seem to cluster into these two types called luminal A and luminal B, luminal A having the best outcome, and they tend to be ER and PR-positive. The luminal Bs have a slightly worse outcome, and they tend to be, although not always, ER-positive, PR-negative. And then there's the HER2 subtype. And interestingly, even though we've known HER2 as a positive tumors as a distinct entity, they also cluster uniquely with multi-gene analysis. And then there's the basal phenotype, which is also called triple negative. These are ER, PR, and HER2 negative, and they seem to have a worse outcome. They seem to be more commonly seen in African Americans. They seem to be seen in patients with BRCA1-associated tumors. And there's more to it than that. They seem to express EGFR and CKIT, so they may have some unique targets as well. And then there's a final subtype that looks like normal breast. So those are the subtypes that have been defined that way. And my guess is that there are probably even subtypes within those that we will be able to discern. Where do the names luminal and basal come from? Well, they were initially described as the pattern seen in the basal layer of normal ductal epithelial cells. So these are the basal layers of cells that give rise to the adult cells. And most tissues have basal layers, like the skin has a basal layer, the GI tract has a basal layer, and that tends to be the least differentiated cell. It looks like a stem cell. And so it corresponds to the least differentiated, most aggressive tumors. Whereas the luminal cells are the ones that are closest to the lumen, those are the most differentiated cells. And the luminal tumors have the same profile as the luminal cells of the normal duct, which is how they were given that name. So it sort of makes sense. The more differentiated luminal cells have a better outcome, tend to make ER and PR, whereas the basal cells are negative for all ER, PR, and HER2 and have a worse outcome and do have less differentiation and have a more aggressive behavior. I think that the important thing to think about with all these therapies is that every patient, even today with today's tools, 
can have individualized treatment. And that's very appealing to patients. You know, I think one of the reasons that complementary and alternative medicine and herbal medicine and Chinese medicine is so appealing to people is because they are looked at as a person. And we make every effort to know who they are as an individual, whether it's scientifically or medically or in a more holistic sense. But we're actually moving in that direction now, which is very encouraging. And I think patients find that very appealing, too, as we're not going to use a one-size-fits-all we're not going to use a monolithic approach. I think that all disciplines need to be aware of this. We tend to think about this all the time in the medical oncology field, but more and more our colleagues in the area of breast imaging, surgery, and radiation oncology are becoming familiar with this as well. In fact, my surgical colleagues oftentimes will make a decision themselves that this patient needs an oncotype DX. Based on their discussions with the patient, they go ahead and order it, and then by the time I see the patient, I have it back, and usually I agree with them, yes, this was a great call, it was appropriate to do it, and it's now going to really help my discussion.